Warning, at this rate, we're eventually going to have an episode that's nothing but a string of profanity. And I can't promise it isn't this week. This week's episode of The Scathing Atheist is brought to you by Bloom That, Loot Crate, and Blue Apron. And by our new Donald Trump nickname contest. This week's winner was listener Heath E., who had Chester Molester Copper POTUS. Send us your favorites on Twitter and you could be our next winner. And now, the Scathing Atheist. This is Travis. And this is Yumi. We're in our secret lair in Afghanistan. And after years of working out here, we can say, without a doubt, that, that we, we did, did in fact evolve from filthy monkey men and women. Glory hole. Wrong show. I don't care. Thursday. It's February 9th. And schools will now be bear free. <laughs> <laughs> they will, yeah. I'm No Illusions. I'm Eli Bosnick. I'm Heath Enright. From New York, New York. Secret Lair, Pennsylvania. This is the Scathing Atheist. On this week's episode, the Trump administration declares that all lies matter. <laughs> the alt-right runs out of stuff to buy. Now that every consumer product is Muslim and gay. And Andrew Torres from Opening Arguments will be here to teach me all about my Johnson. But first, the diatribe. The first apocalypse I remember surviving was in 1988. I'm sure there were a couple before that, but that's the first one I actually knew about going into it. So my best friend growing up had some weird pot-smoking, post-hippie, religious nut parents, and they were relatively convinced that the world was going to end in 1988. Now, you're not convinced enough to quit their jobs and spend their life savings, but convinced enough to try to scare some 12-year-old kid over it. Now, if you're one of those whippersnappers that gets all of Eli's pop culture references, you might not know about this one, but it was a really big deal at the time. It came from Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and it is hard to overstate how big this book was. Came out in 1970, sold over 25 million copies. They made a documentary about it, and Orson Welles narrated the motherfucker. In fact, it was the second best-selling English-language book of the decade behind only the Bible itself. So in this book, Lindsey does some like deep-dive cherry-picking bullshit with the New Testament and lands on 1988 as the starting gun for the end times. He reads the bit in Matthew where Jesus talks about the like learning a lesson from the fig tree. The disciples ask him when the end times are coming. And he says, uh, you see this tree over here? When it sprouts, summer is near. And then you got like one generation at most. And since fig trees are kind of like the nation of Israel, and since reading this passage even remotely literally proves Jesus was full of shit, Lindsay reasoned that what Jesus meant was that one generation after Israel reemerged as a nation, the apocalypse would begin. And a generation, as we all apparently know, is 40 years. Israel reemerged as a nation in 1948, therefore seals and trumpets and bulls of wrath in 1988. And with steel reinforced logic like that, you can hardly blame the entire 70s for buying into this bullshit, right? 
So a disturbing number of people apparently forgot about the relentless line of suspected antichrist candidates stretching back to Paul's shifty neighbor lady and geared up for the 1970th season of Jerusalem Idol. And, and I'm sure there were plenty of antichrist candidates at the time, but my friend's parents felt like they'd narrowed it down to two. Either it was the president whose first, middle, and last names, Donald, Wilson, and Reagan, just so happened to each have six letters. Hmm? Or it was Henry Kissinger because he was a Jew. Now, now try to put yourself in my shoes here. Right? 12 years old, no real knowledge of religion. Two stone adults are trying to explain a convoluted biblical theory that they probably don't quite get themselves confidently predicting the end of the world and not particularly upset about it. I had no fucking idea how to take this, and I still don't. In fact, I still feel the same way. Like, I, I wasn't scared because, like, nothing they were saying made any sense, and they didn't seem too worried. And I was pretty sure that if the world was coming to end, my parents would have given me a heads up or something. So from my earliest awareness right up to the present moment, apocalypticism seemed pretty fucking stupid. Of course, as you've probably noticed, the world didn't end in 1988. And it didn't end again in 1991 when the Gulf War was supposed to trigger Armageddon. Or in 1994 when Harold Camping said it would. Or in 1995 when Harold Camping said it would. Or in 2000 when Jerry Falwell, Edgar Casey, Sun Myung Moon, Ed Dobson, Jonathan Edwards, and Isaac Newton said it would. Or in 2007 when Pat Robertson said it would. Or in 2011 when Harold Camping said it would again. Or in 2011 but a little later when... Harold Camping also said it would. And I'm sure we have plenty of apocalypses yet to survive because despite its 100% failure rate, predicting the Christian apocalypse is still good money. Now, think for a second about the methodology behind these things because they're all doing the same shit, right? They're all a case of digging through Revelation with a fine-tooth comb, trying to sort out the symbolism of all the weird prophecies. And if you've ever read the book, that's going to strike you as odd since there's an angel standing next to John the whole time telling him what all the shit represents. The book is self-interpreting. What's more, there's no real mystery to what it's talking about, and it isn't a future apocalypse. It's a present-day one, back in, like, the year 90. See, apocalyptic books were a whole genre back then. There's only one in the Bible, but we have others in the ancient sources and we have references to a lot more that no longer exist. It was a genre back then in the same way that gospels and histories were. The same way science fiction and dark comedy are now, right? If you know the genre, it's patently obvious what the book is trying to say. All the crazy, mysterious shit becomes a series of familiar tropes. But if you don't know the genre, you could get trapped in pointless questions for 1900 years and counting, apparently. I mean, try to imagine it like this, right? Think about like you're studying a limerick that's translated from English into your way in the future language, but you don't know what a limerick was and you don't have the original English to look at, right? You could spend years obsessing over why the author felt the need to specify the man's origins. You could write whole treatises on the reason they chose to use the word grin instead of smile. But until you learned what the fuck a limerick was, you'd probably never land on the fact that smile just doesn't rhyme with chin, and, and and looking at the book of Revelation without understanding what an apocalyptic book is, is at least as stupid as this. As soon as you know what the rules of the genre are, it's patently obvious what's going on, what the author is seeking to do, and what the various characters are meant to represent. Every reputable scholar I can find seems to agree that he was identifying Rome as the whore of Babylon and Nero as the Antichrist. So the whole point of the book was, don't worry, guys, we're living in the end time, so Jesus will be here any second. Which means, when you think about it, Revelation is itself... A failed apocalypse prediction. They're using a failed apocalypse prediction to predict the apocalypse. 
I mean, if you think about it, the entire Christian religion is just one big failed apocalypse prediction, right? When Paul heard that Jesus had risen from the dead, he's like, oh, folks rising from the dead. That means the apocalypse is starting. And from what we have of his writings, that's obviously what he thought was going on. The, the, the line that Lindsay butchered to predict the 1988 apocalypse is actually a line where Jesus assures the people standing around him that the apocalypse is going to come during their generation. So the people cribbing conspiracy theories from revelations are actually making failed apocalypse predictions to the third power. Consider the stupidity of this. Look, I know this stuff, right? If I know a thing about religion, it's not a hard thing to know. It doesn't take decades of studious scholarship. To miss the point of revelation, you have to actively misinform yourself and actively avoid correction. Pondering the mysteries of Revelation would be like spending a lifetime trying to figure out who really did frame Roger Rabbit. Just watch the fucking movie. They tell you at the end. You know, of course, we've been through this plenty and we're pretty chill about it at this point. People generally don't burn all their possessions over it or anything anymore. So the good news is that we've gotten really good at the world not ending. But the bad news, and we can never take our eyes off of it for a moment, is that we're sharing the world with a lot of people who seem disappointed by that fact. They're talking about your Jesus. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you a special news bulletin. Joining me for headlines tonight are two fellas guaranteed to be called fake news by the president, Heath Enright and Eli Bosnick. Fellas, are you ready to honor the victims of the Bowling Green Massacre? All lies matter. Exactly. <laughs> it's the American way. American way. <laughs> All right. Well, obviously, there's a lot of news to fake. But before we can get to that, a quick word from this week's first sponsor, BloomThat.com. You know, here on The Scathing Atheist, we like to keep our ads fun, make them into little sketches, throw in some jokes, give you a chance to laugh along while learning about our sponsors without making you want to reach for the forward 15 seconds button. But this week, we're doing something a little different for BloomThat.com. Thanks, Noah. That's right. We wrote a hilarious sketch where I was a Mexican flower salesman. And aside from the fact that the accent I had planned was described as a little too hate crimey, we wanted to share with you a very serious message. Everybody. Everybody. Everybody wants flowers on Valentine's Day. Look, I get it. Holidays are a construct so people can sell chocolate. See you on season three of Mr. Robot, but this holiday happens to be a construct to sell things that celebrate love, and you do not want to blow this. So here's the deal. LoomVat.com makes truly beautiful handcrafted bouquets out of fresh flowers, and you are going to order one. Seriously. Do it. Pull over your car or whatever. Right now, it, it takes two minutes from start to finish. You think dudes don't like flowers? You're a fucking idiot. I love the shit out of some flowers. Non-binary? They love flowers, too. You got someone in your life who doesn't like flowers? They got gift baskets, bath salts, chocolates, candles, stuff. It's the best. And this is all you gotta do. When we're done here, just go to bloomthat.com slash atheist. Atheist. That's us. The not God people. Right. BloomThat.com slash atheist. You'll get an offer that's just for us and just for this week. And it's the best price on a gorgeous bouquet just picked and hand-designed. Oh, you didn't have to do that. Valentine's Day is stupid. Those are lies. She doesn't think it's stupid. She loves it. You did have to do it. Plus, you'll get a premium designer vase that normally costs about $15. Not paper, a vase. She's going to use that for other stuff, too. People love vases. They like to say vase. Plus, 15% off 
their lowest price. That sounds literally impossible, but it's not. So that you can give us the money you saved as a thank you for the first Valentine's Day where you didn't get her weird grocery store dead flowers with gross poison powder and no note. Seriously. 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 Stop what you're doing. Go to bloomthat.com slash atheist. Because come on, don't be that guy who forgets Valentine's Day. Nobody likes that guy. That's what the bad boyfriend does at the beginning of the movie before she meets the guy we like. Bloomthat.com. Bloom better. We're going to get some people laid this week. You're damn right we're going to get some people laid this week. And now, back to the headlines. In our lead story tonight, in a transparent effort to reinforce his movie bad guy motif, President Trump threatened to cut off our Johnson last week at the National Prayer Breakfast. In an address that can best be described stylistically as stream of semi-consciousness, Schmeckle Orange reminisced about firing his agent once, shit-talked Arnold Schwarzenegger's TV ratings. And mourned, asked people to pray for him. It, it, that really happened, too. <laughs> then he mourned for the loss of a Navy SEAL like Gary King describing his mom's funeral, presented American religious history in the style of a third-grade book report, and then promised to repeal the law that doesn't allow tax-exempt churches to directly endorse candidates. I guess there are worse laws he could have promised to repeal for that crowd. I mean... If she's asking for it, she's asking for it. Let's bow our heads in prayer. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. President, Mr. President, you could call it the one out, two in policy. <laughs> That's right? amazing. I told you this praying stuff works. Fantastic. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> of course, in a typically overzealous and under-equipped effort to add emphasis, he promised not only to get rid of the provision, but also to, quote, completely destroy it, end quote. So... Not just repeal here, but full-blown damnatio memoriae. We're going to have LBJ's face chipped out of bass reliefs and shit. So within hours of the announcement, Republicans in both houses of Congress introduced bills that sought repeal of the amendment, even though there was already one introduced in the House. Yeah. It's like, well, it's, it's like the legislative equivalent of hitting the elevator button again because it's taken too long, <laughs> I yeah. guess. It's like when every asshole on the plane has to get up and stand in the aisle the fucking moment the airplane <laughs> yes. lands. Like idiots. And all y'all, I want to get off too now. Yeah, yeah, you do. Everybody wants to get off. Like a dog waiting for you to unlock the fucking door. So. <laughs> or you can stay seated the entire time like Heath. Just Heath and four old ladies who are waiting for their wheelchairs. <laughs> so what does all this Johnson Amendment repeal mean? Well, for more on that, we're joined by Andrew Torres of the Opening Arguments podcast. Andrew, welcome back to The Scathing Atheist. Yay, Andrew! Well, thank you very much for having me. Do Heathen I get to be part of interviews now? Yeah. No. What? Well, well sort why of. not? Well, Heath, but I mean, you... You do a doodle of a dragon on your notes, and then your first question for Andrew is, do you want to share a boy at ReasonCon? Does he want to share a boy at ReasonCon? You're a boy. Question stands. Rawr! Dragon. No. Yeah, you see? Exactly. Now, Andrew, given the present political climate, there are at least 900 things I'd love to ask you about, but I'm going to keep my, my focus narrow here. Tell us, what is the Johnson Amendment? 
Okay, well, it is named after former Senator and then President Lyndon Johnson. And what it did was amended the IRS code. And specifically, like when you hear the the provision that it affects is 501c3 entities. And that number comes from the specific subsection in 26 USC. So it amended 26 USC 501c3. And the specific implication was to say that any entity that is tax exempt under that provision, 501c3, may not and here's the specific language, participate in or intervene in, including the publishing or distribution of statements, any political campaign on or behalf of or in opposition to any candidate for public office. And the idea was, since 501c3 entities are tax-exempt, and since, in fact, you gain a charitable contribution for contributing to them, if you weren't going to pay taxes, you've got to play by the rules and not try and influence the political system. Okay, and and when was this uh, when was this provision passed? Yeah, nineteen fifty four. Okay, so so it's not like you know the country never managed without it. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, when you when you think about, I mean, the IRS code itself was only in you know, about forty years old at that point, so you know, it it was not a particularly controversial provision at the time, and and a large part of that was because the Protestant majority in this country was strongly in favor of separation of church and state at one time. I, I know that seems kind of ridiculous now, um, but but there, there was a fear that Catholic immigrants would achieve numerical majorities in certain areas. And so that sense of, well, we can't let the Catholics get over 50% and start, you know, bringing that like crazy papist stuff and, you know, submit our government to the government of Rome. So we're willing to say nobody gets to, you know, no uh, religious institutions get to participate in the political process because we're that terrified of Catholics. Sorry to interrupt you. Is is that why he killed Kennedy? Yes, exactly. Um, okay. Right, got <laughs> if you're not careful, you end up as Boston. Smart well, thinking. So, so they, why didn't they just ban all the Catholics? It seems like they, it seems like there was an easy solution. Okay. So this comes I, up I, a lot on our show. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just have to say, I, right? I've been practicing law for 21 years now, and why didn't they just ban all the cat? That's the first time anyone's ever asked me that question. But please, please go ahead. <laughs> that comes I, up a lot in our conversation. <laughs> That's the first time someone's ever asked you that publicly. But I, I appreciate you <laughs> acting like it's never come up before um, with, with the attorney-client privilege and everything. Okay, so I, no, but I get that. I mean, when you look at uh, American history, there was. Kind Kind of this agreement for a long time that this was a good thing. So what changed? You know, obviously Republicans are dead set against this amendment now. What what changed and when did it change? The the big thing that changed were the uh, Supreme Court decisions in the 1960s uh, with the Warren Court. That the the most obvious were the the decisions on school prayer. Right, that was kind of a rallying cry. Uh, but also the decisions on school desegregation and busing. And in the in the wake of those decisions, even Evangelicals organized as a political movement in the 1970s and then slowly began their takeover of the Republican Party that has reached, I hope it's conclusion now. I mean, I, I don't know how much more there is to acquire, but um, but no, I mean, like Jimmy Carter, you know, the, the Democratic president in 1976 won a substantial chunk of the evangelical vote. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was really not until 1980 that uh, that the moral majority and those forces really lined up behind the Republican Party. 
So it's less, it's more, <laughs> by Noah, by your and my standards, it's more recent than people would think. Yeah, yeah, just, just before Ally McBeal. Yeah. Right, yeah. So <laughs> you guys were in your early 40s at that point, yeah. right? You've got you to gotta listen to opening arguments. you got to listen to Gam. you got to listen to all the shows to get all the jokes. Okay, but now and this... And old. It's, this, a, shared, yeah, it's a shared cinematic universe, I like to think of it. <laughs> exactly. So, okay, so, but now this, this provision doesn't just affect churches, right? 501c3, that's charitable organizations and, and several other entities, correct? Yeah, there are lots of independent, non-religious public interest organizations uh, that are operated, and, and the, the provision in the law is for religious, charitable, scientific, public safety, literary, or educational purposes. So it's the broadest provision in the tax code for a charity to, to seek exemption. And so, you know, this this amendment was the, the, the political crisis that precipitated it was was religious, but the principle was applied not just to religious institutions, but to everybody. And again, the, the theory was you're a 501c3, you're tax exempt, people get a tax deduction for donating to your organization, so stay the hell out of politics, why don't you? All right, but in a sense, though, isn't it, aren't we in a situation where really only one side is playing by the rules? Because you know, we've talked a number of times on the show before about the uh, Pulpit Freedom Sunday right. that uh, sponsored by the Alliance Defending Freedom, where they encourage churches to openly break this law, you know, and then send video of themselves doing it to the IRS and say, do something, bitch. So, I, it, you know, in a sense, when I first saw this, I said, well, I mean, this is just a law that's not being enforced. What's the real danger in it being repealed? So here's here's what I think of as the real danger, and I don't know, right, if, if let me answer the implication of your question first <laughs> and then answer your question, right? I don't know from a political standpoint whether this will wind up being a unilateral benefit to Republicans or a, un, or a mixed benefit to, to Republicans and some Democrats, and I don't care, and neither should anybody else, right? Like, the, the what this uh, will do is erase the line between 501c3 and 501c4 organizations. And let me tell you why that's important. Because every church is a 501c3. No church is complying with the Johnson Amendment provisions of 501c3. And I, I guess I shouldn't say no church. Like there are, I'm sure there are, but no church that wants to endorse candidates gives a second's thought about the Johnson Amendment. And liberal inner city, largely African-American churches are just as guilty as mega churches. I have not done the research to determine which has more impact. I have my suspicions, but, but I don't really care, right? Like they're all flaunting the law and it's bad. But what uh, the law is doing right now is restraining parachurch and evangelical political organizations like Focus on the Family, for example, that are 501c3, either religious or charitable organizations. They are hard right-leaning. They are active in politics. We all know who James Dobson is going to endorse. But nevertheless, like Focus on the Family maintains a separate Focus on the Family action as a 501c4, right? Like they keep that separation. And if you think that separation is valuable, then you you should oppose this. And, you know, the kind of kicker in terms of, you know, a, a law that's on the books that's unenforced is better than trying to pass a new law from scratch, right? So, right. 
you know, one of the things that is particularly dangerous about churches is that they're the only 501c3 organization that doesn't have to comply with the rigorous reporting requirements of 501c3. Funny how that yeah, is. Yeah, right. right. Well, you know, that was my other question, right? Because they have reporting requirements similar to Fight Club. Does yeah. this just mean that we've created <laughs> like a super, super pack that's like darker, dark money? Yes, that's exactly right, right? Like a, a church can, a church has almost no oversight. And in fact, it would be difficult to imagine constitutionally how you could engage in government oversight of church finances, right? Like, I mean, one of the, one of the beautiful aspects of a bright line rule that says no government tax dollars should go to churches and vice versa is that the way that the, the First Amendment's establishment clause has been interpreted throughout the past 55 years of American history is that excessive entanglement between government and religion is held to be an establishment clause violation. And you can, and you can see the reason for that, right? Like you would not want, you know, somebody to pass a law that says uh, the government is going to vet Catholic bishops or something. That would be crazy, right? But it only works if you hold up the other end of the bargain, right? Like if churches are free to get tax money, get tax benefits and lobby for political causes with zero oversight, and then any any efforts to rein that in are going to be unconstitutional under the lemon test. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's just a, it's just a potential looming disaster. And there's there's no way if this goes through, if that's repealed, the idea that you would have the political will in a, 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 at least the next generation to to reinstate that for the you know when when there's the next democratic president in office is just uh, I mean that strikes me as as incredibly unlikely. Wow. Okay. So uh, <laughs> you didn't talk me back from the ledge at all. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I consider putting both hands on your back and pushing firmly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So realistically, do you think there's a real threat of repeal here? Yeah, I do. I, I wish. I mean, I, I'm I'm searching for the like nuanced, you know, hot take answer, but almost. I mean, the, the religious right is the interest group in the Republican Party. They control virtually all of the votes, and to the extent that there's any potential drop off, you know, you have the um, you know sort of defection from Democrats who are afraid of being on the wrong side of religion. So. Yeah, I, I think it's going to have no problems. And uh, it, I would say add that to, you know, item number 8,374, why you should engage in a vigorous argument with any of the, you know, Bernie bros and disaffected liberals who are like, well, Hillary's just as bad. You know, well, you know, congratulations. This is this is a this is a one way exit that, uh, uh, you know, I don't I don't see coming back in uh, in a generation at minimum. Wow. Sorry. <laughs> Bright side, if it gets repealed, can me and Heath start a church of Elizabeth Warren in 2020? <laughs> uh, I, sure. I think I'm going to be in the front pew. <laughs> Good things happen jurisprudence-wise when we have people with the last name of Warren, in my experience. <laughs> and do you want to share a boy at ReasonCon? I thought you said, <laughs> I thought you said room. Oh, gosh. <laughs> His name is Rune. <laughs> you saw the movie. <laughs> all right. Well, Andrew, I can't thank you enough for helping us sort all of this out. What if I spill hot coffee on him first? <laughs> I said not 
Again, we're not. Question <laughs> still stands. And I still want to know too. If you'd like to hear more from Andrew, including possibly that as a listener question, you can check him out on the Opening Arguments podcast with Thomas Smith, which you'll find linked in the show notes for this episode. And obviously, there's still a ton of news to talk about. So we'll be back to the headlines after this. Hi, I'm Ray Comfort, and I'm here to talk you out of your filthy atheism with one question. Are you up to the challenge? Uh, yeah, Ray, we've we've seen this bit. You do it in all your movies. Yeah. It's, well, you've never good. seen this. If there's no God, who would you say created this fantastic box of delicious ingredients? That one, That's the people at Blue Apron, the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Nope. Okay, well, I guess they, they probably outsourced the boxes, but the stuff in the box. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Manna from heaven. What? Manna from heaven, like God did in the Bible. No, no, no Ray, no. it's a company. They deliver it in trucks. It's Blue Apron. They're on a mission to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. <laughs> That'd be silly. How could they have sustainably sourced all this seafood while providing beef, chicken, and pork that come from responsibly raised animal? I'll tell you here. Divine intervention. Uh, no, no. Actually, Blue Apron has established partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States. Okay, okay. but you can get this delivered to 99% of the continental U.S., and that sounds an awful lot like omnipresence to me. Well, that's not all. You can also choose from a variety of new recipes each week or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. Recipes are not repeated within a year, so you'll never get bored. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-proportioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. See? Miracle! No, no, Ray, it's Blue Apron. But can you prove it? Well, we can. In fact, you can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash scathing. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash scathing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. All right, but where does Spider-Man get his powers if there's no God, huh? That's a radio. <laughs> check me. <laughs> right in your face. <laughs> Thank you, Ray. And in fall, well, now you gone and done it news tonight. In an ever-increasing effort to form a dream team known only as the White Power Rangers, this week, Donald Trump has <laughs> tapped none other than Jerry Falwell Jr. to lead his task force on higher ed policy. Trump's entire presidency thus far is in an effort to make someone else in this country less qualified for their job than he is. <laughs> As listeners might be aware, Falwell is the current president of Liberty University in a supreme example of none of those words matching their meanings. He also <laughs> looks like the dad from Modern Family stuck his head out of a moving TARDIS. He looks like the dad from Bronze Age Family. He looks like he owns a hair salon for IRA bombers. <laughs> <laughs> Not just a client. Yeah. <laughs> According to an article in The Chronicle, the scope, size, and mission of the task force have yet to be announced. But according to Falwell himself, the task force is in response to, quote, overreaching regulation and micromanagement by the department in areas like accreditation and policies that affect college student recruiting behavior, like the new borrower defense to repayment regulations. Or in layman's terms... We're going to make it legal to be a fake college and defraud people out of their money with payday loan as policies again. Yeah. Yeah. No. Or even worse, we're going to accredit fake colleges 
such that college degree itself will become a meaningless term. <laughs> Take that, millennials. <laughs> I guarantee you, Falwell's plan for college loans has the word sharecropper somewhere written. <laughs> Guaranteed. In at least one of the drafts, yeah. And look, you gotta admit, if you're looking for two people to once again give fake universities the freedom to steal from people who are giving them fake education with dubious finances, <laughs> Trump and Jerry Falwell Jr. are the dream team. <laughs> if you want to fuck stupid people, you can't do much better. It's true. And stupid people are the most fun to fuck. However, you can surprise them easily. <laughs> however, this shakes out, I think. We can all agree with Davos in lower education and Falwell in higher education. We're bringing God back into the schools. I, for one, look forward to all those school shootings stopping. And the hurricanes. <laughs> yeah, and the hurricanes. Cartoon. Yeah. yeah. And in one discrimination under God news tonight. Donald Trump is currently finalizing an executive order intended to make sure Christian people can't get in trouble for doing all the extremely illegal things that are called for in the Bible. Yep. Uh, you hear that, ladies? Your UFC interference via junk grabbing days are over. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> that one for sure. But most importantly, the right to live in a world without women's rights, and, of course, the right to dehumanize the LGBT community. Of course. And in fairness, both of those groups were getting extra human-y in recent years and <laughs> uppity about it. So the, the uh, current draft of the executive order is called Government-Wide Initiative to Respect Religious Freedom. And I would love to see the evolution of that title. I'm assuming it started as like, you're allowed to hate fags again. No, <laughs> no. no all right, all right. You're allowed to hate gay people again. No, no, all right. But yeah, of course, of course, they realized that would be problematic, obviously, because it doesn't really say anything about the women's rights they're taking away. Yeah, right. So they well, broadened it out a little bit. <laughs> Maybe they called it like a bring down the dick suckers, lesbians. Damn, damn. Oh, my fuck. So <laughs> close. So, so basically what happened here is that Pence didn't do the homework, so he had to ha hand in like the sticky stack of fantasies he's been beaten off to since the late 80s. Right? I have done that. I failed math a lot. <laughs> but in the most entertaining possible way. Better mm. for English. Yeah, so <laughs> the, the general idea of the order is, well, it's just like it sounds. Apparently Christians are being persecuted by all the new equal rights people are getting, so Trump wanted to make sure they're allowed to legally discriminate against whoever they please for whatever reason they please. Yep. For example, any religious person or organization could refuse to hire gay people, trans people, or women who've had an abortion. That's going to be in the new language. And as we learned from a different executive order last month, for every new regulation created, Trump intends to remove two. Oh, wait. Mm. No word yet on which two he plans to get rid of to make room in the fucking regulations closet for this double-sized <laughs> new one. They're all double-sized. But it seems like the best move, in my opinion, would be getting rid of the 14th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 because, you know, those are going to keep getting in his way going forward. You might as well just nip it in the bud. Right? Yeah. And in Spread Eagle Scouts news tonight, Todd Starnes thinks it's time for him to pull out of the Boy Scouts. Oof, join the club. Uh, that's only like 80% effective. <laughs> now. <laughs> so, after a groundbreaking announcement last Monday that the Boy Scouts of America would begin accepting trans boys into their ranks, conservative columnist and crying in a skin mask Todd Starn penned an angry editorial <laughs> calling on churches around the country to sever ties with the Scouts altogether. 
leading priests all over the country to say, what, for Lent? Yeah. For Lent. <laughs> Just like Hermes. <laughs> oh, not... So, yeah, dubbing the move sexual anarchy, Stearns went on to quote the utterly qualificationless chairman of the homophobic dimension Boy Scouts Trail Life USA, who said that the BSA's move will, quote, put boys in a state of confusion and does nothing to help with normal psychological development. But you know what does? Trapping them in the woods to learn Bronze Age skills from a grown-up without a job. I was making that laddle today. Yeah, while dressing like a park ranger in a lavish Broadway musical and tying specialty knots. Yeah, wouldn't want to fuck with that perfect hetero training program they got going right now. So proving once more that he really just doesn't know how all the L's, G's, B's, T's, and Q's line up, Starnes asks in his column, quote, will transgender children will be able to, to sick Share tents and bathrooms with heterosexual boys, end quote. Wait, wait, what the fuck is he talking about? Like all those signs you see at campsites, everyone is welcome to piss behind the tree that matches their gender identity. Yeah. We can't <laughs> let this happen. What? Yes. So after spending an unhealthy additional amount of time obsessing over the genitals of children, he then challenges the Boy Scouts to stand firm in the face of what he calls militant gender revolutionaries, which means he is getting the erotic graphic novel fan fiction Eli keeps sending him. And that's good. He needs a release. I drew the pictures in blood and other <laughs> stuff. It's scratch and sniff is what I'm saying. <laughs> that's also the name of our drug and catapult party at ReasonCon. <laughs> DJ, Velcro wall, let's blow. Andrew Be has there. already advised me that we have to make it clear that's a joke. Scratch and sniff. Buy drugs from Be us. There. Not a joke. Be Wink. square. And in giving religion das boot news tonight, in a continuing effort to make me pinch myself to make sure I'm not dreaming every four minutes this week, I find myself as a United States citizen once again jealous of the politics and beliefs of the German people. Mm. Yeah, I also have sex dreams about Angela Merkel. She, oh, I want to brush her a little haircut, help her solve a mystery. <laughs> she looks like someone melted Phyllis from the office. Exactly. <laughs> yes. A mere 70 years after it was okay to punch them, according to a new Pew report, 0% of Germans between 18 and 34 feel like Christianity is core to their national identity. There you go. 0%. Wow. Wow. I mean, look, that's great. Glad to see secularism spreading. But one does have to wonder if this is because of the secular nature of Germany or, or slightly darker note, because of the way the question was asked, right? Because the question was, how important is Christianity to you? It was, how important is being Christian to being truly German? So maybe they oh. just mean that's not what they're known for. And <laughs> that's true. They're not no, known that's... for their Christianity. <laughs> no. They're known for their schnitzel and Oktoberfest. <laughs> Nice of you to pretend. That was yeah. nice. Uh, sh shouldn't they really be known for being the location of Israel at this point? I mean, that whole desert plan did not work out. The Jews get Germany now. I think that's fair. <laughs> uh, by the way, somehow my racist spell check disagrees with that. It underlined no, right. Germany. I wrote the Jews get Germany now. Germany, spelled correctly, got underlined. <laughs> Don't know what's going on there. You Here's the crazy thing. That. When you try to correct it, it was nowhere. <laughs> Here's the crazy thing. Try to correct it. It corrects it to ghast. <laughs> no, my fault. Look, I'm just laying out the bedwork for an eventual live show in Berlin. 
German women fuck, but they do not like to be reminded their grandpa was a Nazi. Oh, there you go. There yeah. You go. Well, I'm still dressing as Captain America, though. That's already decided. Plus, I feel like, you know, some of them are going to be into role playing stuff with, with, with the Captain America thing. <laughs> you sure, never shit, know. They wear it. I'd be Captain the Nazi. America. Either way. Yeah. Still, this is good news. And for the optimists in our audience, I just want to point out that I, too, am looking forward to when 0% of Americans think being Christian is important to being American in 70 years. <laughs> Stuff in between, not so much, uh, but, but in well, the 70 years. They'll have a great weight loss plan for you, though. <laughs> That's true. I can see Eli now. Like, this Cyclone B wasn't animal tested, was it? Was it? <laughs> you can only see it because you keep drawing it and putting it all over the studio. <laughs> Throw that up there. And in pulpit, freedom is slavery news tonight. Religious leaders in South Africa are starting to panic a little bit thanks to a proposed law that would ban a wide range of hate speech over there. And that's not generally a great sign for your group, um, <laughs> regardless of the details. Apparently, the clergy community heard about the potential new rules and realized that a big chunk of their job description is giving a Sunday morning hate speech. And according to most dictionaries, it is. Yeah, and, and by and most, he means... Law. The English ones. Do they do they have those in South Africa? Vultures of horror would seem to be evidence that they don't. Is what I'm saying, or that that's not in South Africa. But eh, they all look the same to you. Agree dictionaries. Now, uh, in, in, the fairness Jews the clergy, <laughs> in fairness to the clergy, looks like the uh, proposed law is at least somewhat of an overreach here. Uh, allegedly, the bill was drafted by President Jacob Zuma in hopes of silencing a cartoonist who keeps making fun of him. And it would define the term hate speech way too broadly. So as it turns out, these religious leaders are probably on the right side of the issue this time. <laughs> Much like Nazis who don't want to get punched in the face for talking are on the right side of the issue, technically. Open face compliment sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> but now, to be fair, if you want a law that forbids making fun of Jacob Zuma, it's going to have to be pretty fucking broad. Looks like George Foreman figured out how to make meth with that grill. He looks <laughs> like a shrinky dink of Ving Rames. Oh my God, he does. Exactly. Right? Like they didn't quite come out, but almost did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like your mom was like, I need to start dinner. And you were like, seriously? This is the 10 minutes a day I asked to use the oven, and all of a sudden you're in a hurry? Liz, really? We don't compromise. That's the problem in this family. Marcellus, it's a shrinky dink, serious Marcellus. as fuck. Yeah, so obviously there's a decent argument to be made for the good intentions behind anti-hate speech laws in South Africa. I, yeah. I get that. But you kind of still need to let the pastors and Nazis talk. You really do. It's sad, but you do. Apartheid Nazis and pastors are in the same group is what I'm saying. I just want to say that one more time. They're in the same group here. Bottom line, it's always fun to watch people realize that the legal status of religious exercise and the legal status of hate speech kind of have to be the same. <laughs> and while we let that one sink in, we'll pause for a quick break and hand things over to my lovely wife, Lucid. A man wrote the Bible. A whore is what she was. If it's a legitimate rape. It's a slut, right? It, cooking can be fun. Hey, I'm proud of a man. This week in Misogyny. You know what I love about Trump's America? Job security. Let's jump right the fuck in, shall we? First up this week come two lawmakers from North Dakota who were trying to defend North Dakota's archaic blue laws, laws that require some businesses to open later on Sundays and others to stay closed entirely. 
Bernie Satrum and Vernon Lanning, who look like you can answer their riddle if you can tell left from right, want blue laws to stay in place so that their wives can stay home and serve them breakfast in bed. Seriously, that was their argument. Speaking in defense of the law, Satrum said that Sunday should be devoted to, and I quote, spending time with your wife, your husband, making him breakfast, bringing it to him in bed, and then, after that, go take your kids for a walk, end quote. I'm not even going to lie. The taking the kids for the walk thing is the part that really weirds me out the most. Your kids aren't fucking dogs, asshole. Everybody likes breakfast in bed, but that's some march the kids around the block while I visit the teenager I bought from Larry King bullshit right there. But like I said, Satrum wasn't along. Lest his buddy be the only one in the corner wearing a Lucinda made dunce cap, Lanning jumped right in, adding, quote, I don't know about you, but my wife has no problem spending everything I earn in six and a half days, and I don't think it hurts at all to have a half day off. I guess we're just lucky this wasn't the lead into his women be shopping bit. Obviously, this dismissive passive sexism caused quite a bit of outrage, and we can expect the usual half-assed apology puffery with no real consequences shortly. But hey, we've got listeners in North Dakota. So, hey, listeners in North Dakota, don't vote these assholes in when they come back up, okay? Yeah, nailed it. And from the absurd to the horrific, I'll leave you tonight with the U.S. Capitol of anti-woman garbage, Arkansas, which passed Act 45 this week. That would be the Unborn Child Protection from Dismemberment Abortion Act, a law so stupid they put their ignorance of how abortion works and what it is in the fucking title. A truly magical case of stupidity. The law not only prohibits all dilations and evacuation procedures, the safest way is to have an abortion, but also allows the baby's father to stop her from getting an abortion. Even if he's her rapist, I'm not shitting you. They even made an exception that if you rape a baby into someone and they try to abort it, you can stop them. But you can't send them to jail. They wrote that into law and it passed this year. Seriously. And what's worse, who the fuck knows how this shit will play out in the courts if Gorsuch is confirmed. Now, while we all try to figure out a way to smuggle accurate drawings of uteruses into Arkansas, I'll hand things back over to Noah, Heath, and Eli. Thank you, Lucinda. And in bitter pell to swallow news tonight, thanks to new data from Australia's <laughs> Royal Commission on Priests <laughs> Fucking Kids, we came a little closer to putting a real number on the extent of the Catholic Church pedophilia scandal. And that number is fucking horrific. <sighs> Something like one kid fucking priest out of every 14 priests. Uh, yeah, just want to put this in perspective real Please. quick. If a kid in Australia went to a new priest each day for two weeks, that kid probably met a rapist. Yeah, yeah. It's safer to go to a crack house for two weeks. Just, <laughs> some crackhead probably brings the kid to a police station. Oh, it's a good thing I found this kid. Could end up in a church. So. Well, statistically speaking, yes. That's right. A whopping 7% of Catholic priests employed by the church in Australia in the six decades following 1950 have been accused of child sexual abuse. In some individual churches and schools, by the way, that number was as high as 40%. Again, this is not the number of people involved in the cover-up. This is the number of people formally accused of directly abusing children. 
Yeah, and it's ridiculous. I mean, can you imagine if 7% of prominent atheists were getting a bad example? Sorry, Ooh. you were doing a story about <laughs> but, we hate priests. But in our defense, that's only if we average yours out among everybody. <laughs> and that's all I'm asking. I'm asking everyone take one for the team. Dude, you got to learn to plan your shit out better. I'm not saying that just like... I don't like your thing. It's of, got X's and O's and you use lots of sports I hope you listen to Gam, otherwise this is very disturbing. Now... That related to something else. I it's want not face value. <laughs> no, we just plan rapes. Don't listen to him. <laughs> Making excuses. No, I want to emphasize anything other than where that joke is going. So what I'm going to emphasize is the number, this is the number of people accused, right? Not convicted. 4,444 is that number. That's the number of people who have been accused of sexually abusing kids in the custody of the Catholic Church in Australia. So the number of them who actually did it is almost certainly way fucking higher than that. Planning. Yeah, because sure. No, because an accusation isn't a conviction, sure. But something tells me the number of sexually abused children who don't come forward is at least an order of magnitude higher than the number who come forward with false allegations. Mm, Twitter would disagree, but well, only if you're talking about women and not children. Maybe children. I don't know anymore. What about women and children? All right, well, in fairness to rape apologists on, on Twitter... No, I'm not doing it. Not doing it. I, I, honestly, I had something good, but I am not giving it to them. I had a good, good apology for good the apologists. planning. Once again, good rape apologist planning. Now, the guy whose job it is to defend the church called these numbers indefensible and yet continued collecting a check from them. Nonetheless, chief executive of the church's Truth, Justice, and Healing Council, Francis Sullivan, said, quote, as Catholics, we hang our heads in shame, end quote, giving, in my mind, insufficient rhetorical consideration to the fact that hanging their heads is what got them in trouble in the first place. Little lower, little lower, <laughs> even more ashamed. <laughs> and now less ashamed, and now more ashamed, and now less ashamed. Land awful, out. awful people. Were you wearing that necklace a moment ago? <laughs> so uh, finally tonight, from the ideologer file. In response to last Sunday's Super Bowl ad by Budweiser, which depicted their company's German founder, Adolphus Bush, coming to the United States in 1857, a large group of xenophobic white Christians decided it was time to boycott the beer in protest. Given the pro-immigration theme, I guess, uh, these people think Budweiser is looking to market their alcoholic beverage to Muslims now. Well, but yeah, right. I mean, it works so well for their bacon and clit ring department. So this is just the next logical step. Oh, man. Guys, if the first beer Muslims try is Budweiser, we're in trouble. We could be creating jihadists. <laughs> some, nope, nope. Blow them up. Yeah, no. Give me that pamphlet. Totally me valid. <laughs> yeah, so apparently the protesters think the ad was meant to undermine Donald Trump's Muslim ban by telling the story of an immigrant in a positive light. But here's the thing. The executive order on immigration happened nine days before the Super Bowl. And they released it earlier. The, the, the ad, companies don't generally slap together $35 million commercials what? during the final week before it airs. Like a goddamn term paper they forgot oh, about. Oh, shit. Do we have <laughs> yeah. one of those on that big game? Yeah. What do they think this is? A halftime show? <laughs> no, she was amazing, beautiful, and strong, guys. She was great. Uh, let yeah, it go, gay uh, dudes. Let it go. But, but also, they're pissed about white Christian immigration in the 1800s? <laughs> I mean, 
Shouldn't they at least look at this and say, well, now that's how it's supposed to go. White folks in boats, (laughs) y'all. I mean, I feel like it really betrays your own tenuous grip on what you're pissed about when you can so easily accidentally be pissed at yourself. Mm. (laughs) And uh, There's a couple details about this that I especially enjoyed. First of all, it's nice to see that Trump supporters are refusing to get behind the story of a German guy named Adolphus. I guess <laughs> once. once. Yeah. Finally. Feels like a good thing somehow. But here's my favorite part of the story. Immediately following the Super Bowl, the hashtag boycott Budweiser spelled wrong. Yes. W-I-S-E-R <laughs> yes. was trending nationwide. <laughs> Must be an alternative spelling I don't know about. Oh, uh, so well, about at this. least we know when Warren wins in 2020, we can tell them their marches on January 32nd. Yeah. <laughs> So many of them that was, uh, wrong. That, that was election day, wasn't it? <laughs> All right. So uh, obviously, this is the uh, this is only the beginning of Budweiser's plan for marketing jihad on the United States, and of course, we're here to help. Let's put thirty seconds on the clock. We're looking for ideas for the Muslim-themed beer campaign to scare the Christians. Go. All right, I got one. They'd go a long ways for. How about Mecca lobe? <laughs> Ooh, uh, the Ion Hersey Chablis or the uh, Majid Shiraz. <laughs> Those are about, Yeah, no, they could go into wine, sure. How about um, uh, Sleeper Stella, Artois? <laughs> See, I, I've been trying, but I just cannot make the O'Douls, O'Jews joke work, and I'm ashamed of uh, myself. I think you just crushed it. Mo's Jihad Lemonade, I guess. <laughs> Jihad Lemonade. Uh, Hymenkin. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds more like a Mormon beer, though. Sister wives. And You're damn right it does. Um, maybe rolling a rock there or Anheuser Busch. <laughs> Too obvious. Too obvious. Be like Muhammad. Have a youngling. Ooh. I, how about Skull? Official beer of jihadi executioners. Um, I got one more. How about uh, the OPEC Oiler Maker? And I'm going to need some, some music for this one, guys. You ready? One turban, one scotch, and one beer. Know that we're all good and thirsty and rocked out. We'll wrap up the headlines for the night. He's like Eli. Thanks as always. One. You can't write these things in the thing. I need to not assume. It's a game. You- it's a game. And it's great because none of the listeners know what the joke is. They just hear you laugh. and ladders. Nothing That's to do with Newtown. And <laughs> when we come back, you'll have missed us more than you're willing to admit. So, as is tradition here on The Scathing Atheist, we love to welcome members of the new Trump administration. And with her just being confirmed, today we'd like to invite Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos to the show. Miss DeVos, welcome. It's pronounced Degrassi. Thank you, Noah. Glad to be here. So, today we're going to be talking about Loot Crate, where our listeners can be the envy of their friends and get 100% exclusive crates at lootcrate.com slash atheist and enter our code atheist to save $3 off any new subscription. Oh, wow, that sounds like some real kicking good times, Noah. Well, wait till I tell you about February's crate. It's very put together. Oh, like my barely contained facade of humanity. Kinda, but not evil. Tell me all about this loot crate. On a quest for epic gear, housewares, and collectibles, Loot Crate has it. Well, it sounds good. And how many do I have to donate for a position in a presidential cabinet? Well, Loot Crate offers an epic range of pop culture items for less than $20 a month. So based on your own appointment, I'd say an an awful lot of them. I'll say that's enough to build a wall. It sure isn't. I'm going to be in charge of schools. You are. 
Loot Crate is the best surprise you know is coming. So the opposite of a bear. Sure. Yeah. It's, it, wh- why don't you read the last part? Can't read. I'm in charge of school. Okay, I'll do it. Get ready for February's pop culture theme build. Loot Crate has awesome and exclusive items from the most put together franchises. This February, experience iconic items from Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Batman, Lego Dimensions, and Tetris, including, as always, our monthly t-shirt and pin. Go to lootcrate.com slash atheist and enter our code atheist to save $3 off any new subscription today. I brought marshmallow squares. Those are packing peanuts. (coughs) Salty. Hey, folks, we usually wait until things are a bit closer to plug but tickets are selling fast for ReasonCon. We're going to be hanging out all weekend as well as doing a god-awful movies live with special guest Thomas Smith of the Serious Inquiries Only podcast now. So don't wait. Grab your tickets while you can. Links in the show notes for this episode, or you can just Google ReasonCon. But that's not all. At ReasonCon itself, we'll have hidden a golden ticket inside one of our penises, and the fan who can find dude, it... Dude, dude, What? No. What? I'm just trying to, I'm trying to get people excited for ReasonCon. No, dude, there's somebody whose job, they, they got great speakers. We're doing a live show. They get to hang out with us and Thomas and Andrew and Cogdis are all going to be there. And they, that, that's how we're going to get people to come. Okay. Okay, fine. I'm going to go make myself some cookies. You're going to what? Make myself some cookies. Don't you ever make yourself a batch of hot, fresh cookies? No. Man, how often do you make yourself cookies like twice a day i like pretending someone wants me to be happy dude this sketch is way too dark raisin con april 21st through the 23rd don't miss it you okay never Before we shut everything down and figure out what new international crisis our president instigated on Twitter while we were recording, I wanted to apologize to Natalie and Dan of the Science Enthusiast podcast. They did last week's Farnsworth quote, and I included the wrong link in the show notes. So if you tried to find their show and failed, be sure to check out the new and improved link in this week's show notes. Anyway, that's all the blasphemy we've got for you tonight. We'll be back in 10,022 minutes with more. If you can't wait that long, be on the lookout for a brand new episode of our sister show's hot friend God Awful Movies, debuting on Tuesday at 7 a.m. Eastern. And in case you missed it, we dropped a new episode of The Skeptocrat on Monday, so be sure to give that one a listen as well. Obviously, this wouldn't rise to a full episoditude if I neglected to thank Heath Enright for fighting through a nasty cold and an even nastier Patriots win to make it through the show tonight. I also want to thank the lovely Lucinda Lusions for reminding me to smile and giving me so many good reasons to. I want to thank Eli Bosnick for the incredible patience he exhibits in our increasingly frequent we-can't-tell-people-how-and-why-to-make-bombs-on-the-show conversations. And speaking of those conversations, I also need to thank Andrew Torres one more time for helping us figure out what's wrong with our Johnson. Incidentally, there has probably never been a better time to know more about the law, and the Opening Arguments podcast is the most fun way to learn about it that I've ever found. Be sure to check out the link for their show on the show notes as well. I also want to thank Travis and Yumi for providing this week's Farsworth quote and demonstrating that secret layers are indeed the wave of the future. But most of all, of course, I need to thank this week's most euphonious euergotists, Tamara Nathaniel, the all-powerful atheismo, Ingrid, Brennan, Dan, Mike, Butch, Gunner, Chris, Bernie, Mark, Daniel, Matt, Thomas, Gene, and Anthony, James, Squick, Thinger, Deborah, and Benjamin. Tamara Nathaniel, the all-powerful atheismo, Ingrid, Brennan, Dan, and Mike, whose IQs give boxes of Cheerios O-Envy, Butch, Gunner, Chris, Bernie, Mark, 
Daniel and Matt who attract more bunnies than tricks, and Thomas, Gene, and Anthony, James, Squick, Finger, Deborah, and Benjamin, whose greatness forced Tony the Tiger to admit that Frosted Flakes were only pretty good. Together, these 21 tawdry testaments of titillation traded a tittle of their treasure to our trenchant tirades against the troublesome tools of the tabernacle this week by giving us money. Not everybody has the temerity, tenacity, and temporality it takes to give us money, but if you think you're up to the challenge, you can make a per-episode donation at patreon.com slash atheist, whereby you'll earn early access to an extended ad-free edition of every episode, or you can make a one-time donation by clicking on the donate button on the right side of the homepage at scathingatheist.com. And if you'd like to help, but you're not gonna, we get that. It's your choice. Legal services for this podcast are provided by the law offices of P. Andrew Torres and our audio engineer is Morgan Clark. Our theme song was arranged and performed by Morgan Clark with Richard McNulty on guitar. All additional music was written and performed by Morgan Clark and was used with permission. If you have questions, comments, or death threats, you'll find all the contact info on the contact page at scathingatheist.com. <laughs> it is literally impossible. <laughs> not, you can't do that. All right, you need a second to get your ray on. Sing some Spider-Man. Yeah, I'm always ready to do right. Always ready to do right. All right. Okay, Betsy Devils. I was watching some Betsy Devils videos today, so I can get some voice down. It's working on Devils. I'm so glad I'm not in this one. Oh shit! <laughs> I'm just gonna hold me. I'm gonna leave. <laughs> All right, here we go. There we go. We can do this. I'm on mute. The preceding podcast was a production of Puzzle and a Thunderstorm LLC, copyright 2017, all rights reserved.